Welcome to the Parenting with Impact podcast with your hosts, Elaine Taylor-Klaus and Diane Dempster, co-creators of ImpactParents.com, an online community, award-winning blog, and service organization, helping parents all over the world to raise complex kids become capable, independent adults. Elaine and Diane are certified coaches with personal experience raising children with challenges such as ADHD, anxiety, and more, and extensive experience in guiding parents to raise their complex kids with confidence and calm. On the podcast, Elaine and Diane interview experts, bringing you cutting-edge information about your child's challenges, teach you real-life strategies to create lasting change, and demonstrate how coaching can guide you to parent your complex kids one conversation at a time. For the essentials of Elaine and Diane's coach approach to parenting, download a free tip sheet at impactparents.com slash podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Parenting with Impact. I'm thrilled to have you here and excited to have a conversation with our guest, Jessica Likewise, who is a behavior specialist. So we're going to dive into that and find out what that means and how that relates to what we do with the coach approach, because we do, you know, one of the things that we know about complex kids is one of the things that's recommended as treatment for them is behavior therapy training for their parents. And so let's get into a conversation with Jessica and see how this dovetails into that. So Jessica, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, Lane. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Awesome. So let's get started. Tell us a little bit about what is the work you do with families and how did you come to be doing this work? Yeah, absolutely. So I do what's called applied behavior analysis. And typically we work with children with autism, although I've worked with children who have other special needs as well. And what applied behavior analysis does is we examine a person and we look at what skills that they are missing that are getting in their way that are um, preventing them from being able to do the everyday things they want to do or what behaviors that they're doing that are also contributing to them not being able to participate in activities. So we know that sometimes kids with special needs are lacking skills and sometimes they're doing things that that are not productive for them to do. And what we do is then we support them and we help them to gain the proper skills and replace those skills for the things we don't wanna see. So I actually fell into this when I was in college. I really didn't like kids. Like they were not for me. I mean, but who does, right? When you're like 19, 20 years old, they they smell bad, they make too much noise, you have to change their diapers. So kids were not they on kind of slobber. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Kids yeah. are just not on my radar. But I had a um, scholarship, so I had to do volunteer work and I was going to church in a small church in the Bronx. And they had asked me if I would become a children's minister in this church in the Bronx. And I had said reluctantly, yes, after thinking about it and praying about it, because I thought, okay, you know what? I really like, it was either that, or there was like a community service projects. Like they had the midnight run where literally midnight, we would go and um, feed the homeless in the city. And I, I enjoyed that, but I'm not a night person. I'm a morning person. So the idea of being in the city at 12 to two in the morning didn't appeal to me. So I said, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to suck it up. I only have to do it for a semester and then I never have to see kids again. So it was a labor of um, love, but I went in and I started volunteering with these kids and there was uh, a child in this, this class that I was teaching 
and he was autistic and I had never heard of autism before. I grew up in a small town in New Jersey and autism wasn't as prevalent back when I was a child as it is today. And certainly it wasn't as aware. And I think they're probably. Well, I was going to say we didn't have the awareness of it back then. I think what we're realizing is, is it's probably already been there, always been there, but now we're seeing it differently. Is that fair? Yeah, I think there's a true increase in numbers, not so yeah, much agreed. of an increase, but there is a there is a true like significant increase in numbers, but there is yeah. also a lot more awareness and a lot more diagnosis. Yeah. Also, what the definition of autism is has changed over even yeah. my career. Yeah. But um yeah, so it, I had this boy that I that I worked with and you know, he was really cute. So I just was very I was amazed. I never saw anyone like him before. He thought differently. He acted differently. He spoke differently. I would always call on him to pray for the class. And he would always pray that he had, he got to eat McDonald's French fries for dinner and he would thank God for Pokemon. And it was the same prayer every week. And I just thought he was adorable. So I wanted to learn about what condition he had so I could best help him. So I started studying autism and I contacted an autism center um, and I said, hey, I want to like volunteer for you because I really want to learn about autism. They actually hired me when I was in college. This was 2008. They offered me a good job when I graduated. So while all my friends in the height of the recession are, um, you know, going back to work at the mall with these expensive degrees or going to right to defer their loans. I got offered a really high profile job. I wanted to stay living in New York City and I didn't want to go back home to New Jersey. And so I said, okay, you know what, I'm going to do this and I'll just do this for a few years. And then right. when it gets better, I'll go do what I really wanted to do. And I just fell in love with that. And I've right. been doing it ever since. So how did that shift? And, and so when you say you, you do applied behavior analysis for the people listening, you've heard of ABA therapy. And that's what she's talking about, that the ABA stands for applied behavior analysis. And it's used, as, you, as she says, mostly in the autism realm, but it's moving into the ADHD realm as well. So there are five states already. This is as of 2021, um, where ADHD is covered under ABA uh, from an insurance perspective. And we actually, when we redid Sanity School in 2021, we've collaborated with someone to make it an ABA verified therapy program as well, because it meets all the criteria. So we're going to see more and more and more about ABA in the coming years, I think. So you fell in love with this issue and autism. And so how did that take you into ABA? Well, when I had volunteered for the, when I had volunteered, but they had hired me for this autism center, they were an ABA center. And so my first exposure in the world of autism was to- Was ABA. Okay. at the time, it was the height of what was called the autism recovery movement, which now is taking a lot of flack because, you know, and I do think it's still a very complex issue, but there was this idea fundamentally behind EBA is that there was that autism was a disease. There was something wrong with an autistic child. And our goal of ABA was to quote unquote, normalize the child to recover them from autism, to remove the autism from the child through like teaching them skills. And I think that's a very complex issue today. Certainly Mm -hmm. it wasn't discussed in a very like politically sensitive way. Um, Certainly some of the things we did back then, I mean, even they weren't as unethical as, you know, ABA has a dark history. So if you look 20, 30 years ago, what they did in ABA, 
they did some horrible things. And it does have a very dark history. Today, it's very different. Even when I, by the time I started, it was very different. But still today, we're more child-centered. We're more focused on the individual. Um, there's things I did do, like when I first started, I was trained in that organization. In my own practice, I don't do just because, you know, I'm very, for example, I, I believe in a sensory friendly approach to ABA. So if children are stimming, if kids with autism are flapping their hands, I don't try to stop that. Whereas we did try to stop that 10 years ago. I don't try to stop that today unless it's significantly interfering with the child's ability to participate in a social situation. It happens so often the child can't go into a restaurant or go to the movies or go to even be in a classroom. Then obviously it's something we have to help them with. But if it's something they just do for fun and it doesn't disrupt their lives, then so be it. So this is fascinating to me because you're helping me understand. I've heard a lot of mixed things about ABA over the years, and I've heard a lot of parents complaining and controversy, and I never understood the background which is why it's kind of mired in this. On the one hand, it's seen as a godsend, and then other people see it as as horrible. And I think I'm beginning to get a sense of that. Yeah, well, you have to go back to the history of autism. So when autism was first just like developed as a diagnosis, the official cause of autism was believed to be refrigerator moms. Medically, in the medical journals, the official cause of autism was moms that didn't love their children. And the official treatment for autism, what was what was called a parentectomy, where they would take parent, say it again, parentectomy was the official treatment for autism, where they would remove the child forcibly from the parent's home, and they would put them in institutions. And then that happened for years. So how far back are you going? In the 60s. Okay. So, you know, for the lifetime of many people watching this show, this is not like in the 1700s. Um, we're talking about in the lifetime of people that are living today. In my lifetime, right. Yeah. So then in the 70s and in the 80s, they started to shift and understand, okay, this is not the case. But they decided it was a psycho, a psychiatric disorder. And so they use electric therapy and they would use shock therapy. They use um, heavy pharmaceutical drugs. They... They put children in institutions. There were not even programs in schools until 1986, which is the year I was born, for kids with autism. They weren't in traditional schools. They were just institutionalized. So, you know, then all of a sudden in the late 80s, 1987, Dr. Lovas starts using applied behavior analysis. Look at what had previously happened. And the other thing we have to remember, so they, in, in, the, in 1987, in the early 90s, when they were doing ABA, and this is where the most controversy comes from. They were doing, you, they were doing aversive things for children. They were spraying them with water. They would still shock kids as like, like literally like a shock collar, like a dog, but on their hands. And that was bad. It was horrible. It was still though progress as horrible as it was still better than it It had been. And, And what I'm hearing is that there was this we have to figure out how to help these kids be in society instead of institutionalizing them. So kind of like best intentions, even though badly applied. Right. And by the time that, and the other thing to remember is that these were things that teachers were doing in schools too. Like it wasn't in the lifetimes of many people today, right? Kids, teachers were allowed to hit kids. Parents were allowed to hit kids. This was was my experience. Yeah. Right. You had the ruler on your hands. I did. I'm not diminishing (laughs) the experience of what people went through, which is really horrible. By the time I started, which was in 2008, 
these things were no longer done. They were illegal. If you did them, you would have been arrested. Um, But the dark history was still there. But when I did start and ABA was real, is is really effective in direct instruction through um, discrete child training. It is the number one researched way to teach children with special needs because it really breaks down and pinpoints and focuses on the skills that they need to learn. It really works. But we started off really when I started off, like I said, with this fundamental approach is that there was something wrong with the child and it was our job to fix it. Now, today, there's been a huge shift. And what that's come from is the autistic community of autistic adults. And I, and like, and even just me saying autistic adults, I was taught when I first started in 2008, never call a person autistic. This is offensive. This is not politically correct. It's a person with autism. It turns out most, uh, most adults today prefer to be called autistic than adults with autism. This is, this is a debate in both the autism and ADHD community. And, and it's really at this point, a matter of preference. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, and it's, it's, it is very divided, but, but, and some people have very strong opinions one way or the other. And I just respect those opinions, just like today people are um, discussing genders. You just respect someone's choices. So really at the end of the day, though, I got really involved with this work with autistic adults. And so autistic adults began to give feedback to the autism community saying and to the ABA community saying, we really didn't like this. We really fundamentally don't like being called this. Now, many people like myself were very receptive. Um, as professionals, we were like, well, what do you mean? Like, we thought we were doing everything right. We thought, like you said, we were godsends to you. We thought we were helping you. And there has been a shift in the ABA community. And I think there's still a lot of healing that needs to be done. But certainly, like I said, it's not so much dramatically what we've done has changed because it's still the fundamentals of ABA are there, but we approach it differently. We respect a child. I no longer look at a, a person with autism or autistic person as my job is being to fix them or cure them or recover them. I want to make sure that the autism doesn't get in the way of what they want to do. Right. Living, living their life, they're full of expressive life. Exactly. And, you know, for me, I really wanted to give the autistic community a voice. And so I actually had a book I put out called This is Autism. And I have Mm -hmm. a follow-up book coming out um, in a couple months. And I'm not going to say the name of it yet because we're still working on the copyrights. Understood. Yeah. But the first book was called This is Autism. And it was a anthology that was written by 12 autistic adults who shared what autism means to them. And what it was like growing up with autism. And it was a really big hit. It became a number one best-selling book within the first few hours of it going out. And it held a spot there for over 10 days on Amazon in its category and new releases. It's the number one best-selling book. And it really, for me, was a great contribution that I was able Mm -hmm. to say, look, I do ABA and I love ABA and I know it works. But I'm going to listen to autistic adults who had ABA and who maybe want to well, and I'm going to, I'm going to modify, tweak that. Right. Exactly. And if you wanted to hear, I actually did for almost, I think it was six months, every single week, we did a show where I had parents come on and ask the autistic adults questions. I love and, that. Um, that the, all the recordings of that are on my website, which is, or excuse me, they're on my YouTube channel, which is getautismanswers.com. Getautismanswers.com. Parents can go onto my onto the YouTube channel and they can access all the recordings. Um, awesome. Currently, I'm actually, even though I've been in the field for a long time, I never took my boards because 
I just uh, didn't need to where I was living and I relocated. Now I do. And so if you look at all my most recent videos, they're actually geared to for professional studying for the board exams. But if you look at all the previous videos prior to like, literally three weeks ago, there's hundreds of videos that are designed for parents to understand autism. And like I said, there's a good 20, 30 videos on there where I interviewed autistic adults. And if you want to hear their feedback on ABA and as a parent to make sure you're doing things the right way, they are, they've given really great feedback on even what their parents did right and wrong. Well, you know what I'm loving about this conversation, Jessica, first of all, thank you, because this is a history I didn't know, and it's really helpful for me. What's really jumping out at me is that you could be talking about gender, you could be talking about race, you could be talking about, you know, any way in which people are disenfranchised from community. And what you're saying, I love this notion of acknowledging there's a dark history. That's what it was. We've learned more. We know better and we're doing better, right? And that's what I think we've seen happen in the last couple of years in our society is beginning to to really wrestle with some of the dark truths of, of the past and find a new way to be in relationship with that and with ourselves and with each other. And that's what a beautiful encapsulation of that in this little story about ABA and autism. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it, what it comes down to, I wasn't even born when these right. things were done, or at least I was in diapers. So, you know, and then it stopped. And so while that does not diminish the experience someone else has, right? I also, and I do think as professionals, it is our responsibility to help heal those situations, even though we weren't part of them. But it also doesn't undermine the extent to which we can help people and families today, especially for young children where they're just learning to talk. I specialize in um, verbal behavior, which is a part of ABA, where I really specialize on getting young children to be, to learn language that are non-vocal. So, you know, we can still help kids a lot. And the bad things that happened in the previous generation, they're not going to happen today. You know, it is a very different approach. And I'm not undermining in any way what happened to another person. But that also doesn't mean that a person receiving my services today is going to experience that. I totally hear that. And I'm, I'm reminded of, you know, this, what happened in the 60s and 70s and, and 80s in mental health and then deinstitutionalization. Right. So in those days, what is now ADHD used to be called minimal brain dysfunction. And I have had clients who were given electric shock therapy, older clients, very similarly to try to cure them instead of what we now understand, which is these are brain wirings. This is a brain-based condition where we can retrain the brain in ways to help our community be, again, effectively able to live their happy and fulfilling lives, which is really what we're going for here, right? So what's important for parents to understand now? I mean, I'm hearing this beautiful story about, you know, really meeting kids where they are now, how does that show up? How is, how is it different now? This is a very complex issue. And the reality of it is, is that many autistic symptoms that are in a person's way are rooted in medical 
conditions. They're rooted, rooted in medical issues. For example, sometimes children have an MTFHR gene mutation, which means their bodies can't chelate heavy metals. This is very common in kids with autism. It's common for people that are not autistic as well, but it's very common for kids with autism. And so for those children, if they have metal poisoning, if they get that metal out of their body, their brains are more able to learn, right? Because our bodies can't learn when we're poisoned, right? And then there's there's kids that have met. Let's stick with that, with chelation for a minute, because I know a lot of parents, because I've dealt with it with my kids was little, and I know a lot of parents won't understand it yet. What you're saying is sometimes there be, we get more metals that our body can't process, that it can't chelate, can't get it out. And yeah. so you've heard of lead poisoning. We kind of all know about that as this seriously toxic, dangerous situation, but there are all other kinds of metals in the environment that get into the body that if we can't chelate it, we can't get it out, then it becomes an obstacle, as you say, and it interferes with brain functioning. And so yeah. there's, there are some, some, some more strenuous ways to chelate, more some milder, longer-term ways, but there are a lot of different mechanisms or ways that, that parents can help their kids release the metals from the body. Right. Yeah, I did chelation myself. And for kids with autism, it tends not to be lead. It tends to actually be right. um, aluminum or copper. I was going to say copper. Yeah. Mercury was what people were uh, were having, but aluminum and copper. I did chelation myself. So people ask, will chelation work for kids with autism? If they have heavy metal, po- if a person has heavy metal poisoning, chelation will work for a person who has heavy metal poisoning, regardless of whether they have autism or not. It has nothing to do with the autism. A person who has autism was at a higher risk. Now, the problem is a lot of times what parents will do is they'll do, and they won't know, they'll do either hair testing or blood testing for heavy metal poisoning. The problem with that is that when we have, when our bodies are truly overly affected by metals, it actually hides in our fats and our organs than the metals. So you actually need to do what's called a heavy metal challenge to really know if you have metal poisoning. Now, I did this myself. My doctor, I have a, a condition, a neurological condition myself, and my um, my symptoms, all the doctors I had gone to had just thought it was my medical condition and my diagnosis I was born with. And they were like, well, that's just part of your diagnosis. And I went to one doctor who said, I think you have heavy metal poisoning. I don't think this is part of your diagnosis. And he's like, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do, and he and I, so he did the heavy metal test that came back negative. I said, well, I guess that's not it. He's like, I'm not buying into that. He's like, here's what we're going to do. He's like, we're going to actually do a chelating session. He's like, we're going to do one chelating session. And then we're going to test your urine to see whether or not you have heavy metals coming out of you. He's like, if you have very high levels of metals, once we do a chelating agent, which is called the heavy metal challenge, then you probably have heavy metal poisoning. And when he did that, my, my metal levels were through the roof. Right. So I want to be careful here because we're moving into a whole other realm. And I know that there are parents of kids with autism right now who are like, how do I do this? And what do I do? And, and you don't want to do this independently. You want to do this and consult with a practitioner. And so chelation is one of the ways that you can reduce some of the symptomology of people with for autism some for some kids. Poisoning. It won't work for it, kids have issues with methylation. Well, that was my next one is let's, and then we need to start wrapping up, but talk a little bit about methylation because right. so again, methylation just means that children can't convert necessarily folic acid to methylfolate. Um, sometimes so parents, if they have low folate levels, their parents will give them folic acid, 
which actually can be extremely harmful to a child who can't methylate because they can't convert it. So if kids are getting vitamins that they can't use, then it actually can poison them. If they have methylation issues, they need to take then methylized forms of vitamins. And the number of things in which I can share with you are endless. You know, there's a- Right. And I, what I want to reinforce is that, is that these are some of the protocols that are used in, for some kids- on the autism spectrum. And what's most important is that you work with a practitioner that you don't, don't try this at home, right? Work with somebody. If this is something you want to experiment with. And when my eldest child was, was young, and again, this was so long ago, I worked with a nutritionist and, and we did both chelation and used methylated B12. So I'm very familiar with what you're talking about. Um, in both situations, what she said, I'll never forget, was we're borrowing from treatment for autism at that time. And it wasn't, we didn't necessarily have a diagnosis for autism, although in hindsight, I think we probably should have. But those were things that were present and evident for my particular child, right? And so you don't want to do this independently. You want to do this in, in concert with somebody who really knows what they're talking about because it's complicated stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And my point of this is not to use methylation chelation. My point is that there are oftentimes genuinely medical issues that can be medically addressed to help a person with autism. And yeah. you should do those things as a parent. So that doesn't necessarily mean that you fundamentally want to change who a person is or that you fundamentally are rejecting the interests and characteristics of a person. You know, there's a way to support a person medically. And to also like respect the fact I work, I have an autistic adult who wrote part of the book that I, um, that I was talking about, this is autism. And he loves my little pony. He's in his thirties and he lives alone and he works and he's successful. And that's just, he loves my little pony. He carries the, my little pony dolls with him and he wears um, his house is decorated with my little pony. And he watches that TV show. I'm not going to tell this person, Hey, you can't do that because that's not normal. That's not what a 30 year old man is interested in. I'm not going to do that. But if I, if I can help him, his brain work more effectively, I'm not going to try to change who he is, but if I can help him be more effective in terms of how his brain works neurologically, I'm going to do that because in my own body, I've done these things to myself because when I, I've had brain fog and when I've had brain fog, I couldn't focus. So it's not about the autism. It's about putting a person in the best state. So my advice to parents is don't reject everything from the past because it had a dark history, you know, don't abandon everything. Like I said, there was the Dan doctors for defeat autism. Now there was this recovery movement. A lot of good research came from that. So don't just reject everything and go into the alternative of like, we're just going to um, accept and love and not do anything and just let this person be because that's going back way, way, like that's just really taking steps back but respect a person for who they are, love them for who they are, you know, don't fundamentally try to change their characteristics, but support them the way they need to be supported in the way you would support any individual who has a medical issue, not the medical issue, but it does go hand in hand with medical issues. Brilliant. So Jessica, tell people how they can find you. You'd mentioned your YouTube channel, which is getautismanswers.com. And then you have a website. Yes, my website. Is hopeeducationservices.com. Okay. And, and both of these will be in the show notes for everybody. Yeah, perfect. Sorry. And I have five free books on there as well. So as a parent, if you are affected by autism or you want to learn more, I actually used to charge for these books, but um, when everything got shut down, I decided to make them free for the community. So you can just go get them. My entire ebook library is on there for free. 
awesome. So awesome. So Jessica, this has been really interesting and enlightening for me and I know for the people listening. Is there anything else you want to share with listeners briefly before we wrap up? You know, my favorite quote in the world of autism is, and, and I actually kind of made this quote up, but it says in, in the world of autism, one size fits no one. One size fits no one. So I'm going to guess that we're moving into your favorite motto or quote. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what I wanted to add is that that was it. It's just, I, I tend to always end with that quote, which is- No, say it again. In the world of autism, one size fits no one. One size fits no one. I love it. So thank you again for being here. Our guest today has been Jessica Likewise. She's an applied behavior an analyst and incredibly knowledgeable and insightful. It's rare to find somebody these days who's been involved in that community as long as you have. So thank you for your insights and for, your, for the history lesson um, and for the work you're doing in the world. And to parents who are, and professionals who are here listening, thanks for what you're doing and for yourself, for your kids. That's what makes all the difference. Take care, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Parenting with Impact podcast with Elaine and Diane. For more information on the Impact Parents community or to join Sanity School for Parents, please visit impactparents.com. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with friends who need similar guidance and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.